that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. From the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In this month's edition of First Things, a uh, professor by the name of Abigail Favalli writes that she teaches in a great books program at an evangelical university and that almost all of her students are in, the prog- in, the, in her program are born and bred Christians of the non-denominational variety. She says a number of them have been the both thoroughly churched and educated through Christian schools or homeschooling curricula. Yet an overwhelming majority of these students do not believe in a bodily resurrection. While they trust in an afterlife of eternal bliss with God, most of them assume this will be disembodied bliss, in which the soul is finally set free of its meat suit, a term they fondly use. In the article, which I encourage you to read, she posits that only a quarter of her students affirm the orthodox teaching that we ultimately have a body in our glorified heavenly form. As contemporary Christians become more and more unmoored from sacred tradition, trends like this are only likely to continue. The result will be a kind of crude Gnosticism, the value of the body depending more or less on one's perspective. Insofar as the body is a breeding ground for carnal lusts, it can face no other faith, no other fate than to be discarded. Insofar as the body is the vehicle for earthly purity, it is to be submitted to exacting rigor, in the form of strange diets, beauty regimens, and worse, marathons on Sunday mornings. Which is it? Well, in a confused way, it's both. Yet Orthodox Christianity will always present us with a vision of human life redeemed by the power of Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, not merely in his soul, but in his whole person, body, and soul. Modern materialism constitutes a kind of doublespeak. The body is the only thing to be truly known, while simultaneously saying that the body is suspicious, never really telling us the real truth about ourselves. I need give you no better example than our contemporary debates about gender to show you this. We Christians are confusing to the surrounding culture because we say emphatically that the body is good and true, but it is not the only thing. We must find a way to constantly speak clearly, and the truth is that tonight's celebration provides us with just such a way. Contemplation of the ascended Christ must awaken us to not merely the creedal realities shown forth in the Gospels, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, but the eschatological future for human life, for your life and for mine. In Christ we see just what God has in store for us in a future redemption. That the body is not made to be discarded, but is made to be preserved forever. Not in a disembodied heaven, not in some sort of tea party in the sky where little more than ghosts play harps forever and ever. That sounds miserable, doesn't it? I'm not particularly good at the heart, by the way. Not a flight to the moon, 
but a future for human life redeemed so fully that it participates bodily in the life of the Trinity. The ascension, the truth that Jesus very much in his risen body, in his risen human body and nature, ascends to the right hand of the Father, shows us an image of human life that has become divinized, a flame and a blaze with the nature of divinity. Indeed, the ascension shows us something even more glorious, that it is precisely not in the nature of human beings to decay and die, finally, becoming more and more corrupt, but that our nature is created by God and sustained by God precisely because he wills it. Being willed by God, we understand that human life, though frail, is necessarily compelled toward a certain fullness, immortality, incorruptibility, a capacity to transcend in triumph over frailty. All of this, of course, is shown forth in Christ. It is willed by Christ. Indeed, it is granted by the grace of Christ. This glorious future is the very thing of which Paul speaks in the letter to the Ephesians, the riches of his glorious inheritance with the saints or in the saints. This is a glorious inheritance which gains its character from, and indeed which is revealed in, the mystery which we celebrate tonight. The Lord's triumph over death and his exaltation in the body to the right hand of the Father. Any understanding of heavenly glory which is detached from Christ, risen and ascended, is by definition insufficient to establish in our minds and in our hearts what lies ahead. We replace union with Christ with what can only be crude analogies, don't we? Material wealth, streets of gold, mansions, maybe air conditioners that work. And to be sure, these analogies are used in Scripture, but only as figures to relate to us the wealth of being joined to Christ at the Father's right hand, our bodies filled with the radiance of God's glory. We speak of relief from suffering and sorrow, and that is right. But what we await is not merely release from suffering and sorrow. It's not merely unending, undying wealth. The wealth consists in something. The lack of suffering consists in something. My point tonight is that the Christians tell us the Christian's perfect end is nothing less than the beatific vision to behold God in all his glory, and not with some strange eyes, but with the very eyes that are in your head today, redeemed for that vision, made perfect for that vision which will last forever. To behold God in all his glory, as perfectly as Jesus' human nature is joined to the Godhead now. And that is the cause of Christian hope, Not that our lives will eventually get better, not that we'll gradually gain more wealth, not that we'll eventually feel more at home in this world or successful or at least less prone to failure. Christian hope is not even that our churches will grow or that our air conditioning systems will be fixed. That's been my eschatological hope this week. Or that we'll have the money to buy new pews or that we'll have the money to build all kinds of things or that we'll have the money to buy a bigger house or a better car. All of those things are good things, and we should ask for them, but they cannot be the cause of our hope. 
For the Christian, nothing less than the status of the ascended Christ will do. Anything else is simply not enough. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. There you and I, God willing, will find ourselves right there with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.